0: Open. Outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. As private equity enters the business of ophthalmology, it raises a lot of questions for those of us in the field. When is private equity the right choice? Aside from the windfall, what are the benefits of selling? What are the drawbacks? In this episode of Off The Grid, Dr. Jim Loden talks about his personal experience and offers us some historical perspectives on private equity. Jim is the founder of Loden Vision Centers and his father was an ophthalmologist who formed one of the first co-management optometrically driven companies which was similar to a lot of private equity models we see today. We discuss the lessons history has taught us and whether private equity has the potential to be as successful in the surgical business as it has been in other areas of healthcare. Later I speak to Dr. Tal Raviv to get his thoughts on the matter. Is private equity good? Is it bad? Listen as we examine the pros and cons coming up on Off The Grid. Ophthalmology Off The Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Uh, This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and I'm so excited that my good friend, Dr. Jim Loden, is uh, joining us tonight to get his perspectives on private equity and also for us to hear a little bit more about his story, uh, which is I, I know a little bit about it, but I'm excited to learn more about Jim's uh, backstory. Jim Loden is uh, the founder of Loden Vision Centers. They have five locations throughout Middle Tennessee. They do just a fantastic job of taking care of patients. They do it the right way. And uh, Jim is someone I looked up to for a long time, someone that I go to for advice on on all things ophthalmology. And so, uh, Jim, thank you for coming on the program tonight. I'm really excited to hear your perspectives on private equity. But even more than that, I want to hear a little bit more about your story because I think it's very interesting. Great. Thank you so much, Gary. It's just an
1: enjoyable. All, every time we have a conversation together, I always love it. Always have a good time. We always end up laughing, don't we? That's exactly right. And that's what life's about. A little bit about my background and where I'm coming from with some of my viewpoints on private equity. So I'm a second-generation ophthalmologist. My dad was an eye surgeon. He formed one of the first co-management optometrically driven companies called Vision America back in the 1980s. And that company ended up merging with Omega Health Systems, and it was primarily an optometrically driven company. Uh, Very similar to a lot of the private equity models that are out there today looking for expansion in multiple markets. The model seemed to be going fairly well, and my dad suddenly died in in 1990, just dropped over dead of a heart attack. We sold the practice because I was still in medical school to Omega. And even after I moved back to Nashville out of fellowship, uh, did a cornea fellowship with Frank Price and moved back to Nashville in 97, I went to work for a PPMC company. My dad's old practice was not interested in hiring me in Nashville. And it was a little bit of a struggle the first couple of years. And everybody, I want to put you in the perspective, everybody in 1995, 96, 97 was talking about these position management corporations, PPMCs, and how they were gonna dominate the market and the small scale guy was gonna go away and you weren't gonna be able to get on insurance plans if you didn't join up with them. And then by 1999, you just saw this whole system imploding in on itself where they had done massive acquisitions but not really added any value in management. You saw big companies like Ficor going down the drain with it. And then a lot of the ophthalmology companies were struggling. By this time, Omega Health Systems was starting to struggle. I didn't sell my stock in the company because they were my crosstown competitor. They were my number one competitor and they were just pounding me. And finally, Unfortunate for us in some ways, fortunate in others, they did a poor job of running the company and lo and behold, it went under. And if you look around, there's a whole bunch of these companies in that time frame that just didn't make it. They couldn't add value, they couldn't produce scalability. And I was there, I was able to take over a lot of the referral business and load and vision centers just blossomed and grew and grew. So the first lesson is is that PPMC model didn't really work and some of the storylines we're hearing today are very, very similar.
0: All right, I have to stop you because this is Yeah stop me there as I'm telling the story. We've got more story to tell. So stop there. So here you are, you're you're in medical school. And that had to be a horrible tragedy, and, and, and we don't need to unpack that necessarily right now. But um, med school's tough enough on its own. You get out of residency and fellowship. You go back to the town where your father uh, was a legend, cast a big shadow, had, a, I'm sure, a great reputation. And the Absolutely. practice that your father built would not hire you back. What was that like? It was a little bit of a slap in
1: the face, but under that model, I knew that I would never have any equity ownership. I would strictly be an employee of an optometrically run company. Okay. So there was not a lot of your interests weren't aligned,
0: maybe. Yeah,
1: it, I wasn't certain that that was going to work out for me in my mindset in the long term, Gary. Okay. So it wasn't that traumatic of a experience for me because I already had the idea I wanted to be an operator myself and be a major part of putting the company
0: together. Right, gotcha. And and were there some guys, uh, some older guys who helped you in your venture when you when you were trying to get? You know, I'm, I'm sure your dad had a lot of friends who were, had had been in the business. Any anyone in particular come to mind? Anyone that helped?
1: Yeah, there there's two guys. Uh,
0: they're legends in their time: Ralph
1: Berkeley and Jim Gills. You know, both of them have given me tremendous advice over the years and been. You know i think that's one of the things is i'm 53 now i'm more than happy to give younger doctors advice because i've been in practice now for 21 years it's hard to believe that long but i've made some big mistakes i've made some great success stories as well and you learn from each one of them as you go but you can really sometimes narrow your learning curve down hanging out with some of these older guys because Uh, It's kind of like the fashion industry. What comes around goes around, and it's been there before, and it's just kind of
0: repackaging some things that have come down the line many years before. So let's um, reframe this a little bit. So basically, you get out of fellowship, and you're sort of seeing almost the height of the bubble of the PPMCs, where things are getting rolled up. People are, as you mentioned, they're acquiring but not adding value. They're basically trying to um, maybe package something together for that second bite, or they're they're basically trying to maximize uh, what their balance sheets look like, but not really undergirding that with a lot of organic growth or strength. And you found yourself in a in a position where you're sort of almost at the height of the bubble, and then the bubble bursts, and here you are to collect all the pieces and and start loading vision centers with in some very fertile soil where where the deck has been completely reshuffled is that pretty fair that is a fair assessment i
1: bought my practice that i was working for from the ppmc in 1999 because it had just imploded so that was a great decision because I had some volume to build on. Right. Uh, some cash flow to build on. It, 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 we were only doing about 350 to 400 surgeries a year, but it's a starting point. It's much better than going out and
0: trying to open a store de novo by just hanging your shingle. That's right. So let's look at maybe a couple things. What do you think the PPMCs we, – we know they got a lot wrong. Is there anything you can look back on and say – you know, they had some right ideas. Maybe they didn't apply it right, but maybe some of the thinking was correct. What things do you think that maybe they got wrong? Because it's easy to look at a model that failed and say, well, it's just all wrong. I mean, Maybe it was all wrong. But w- was there potential with the PPMC model? Well, I'm not sure of that. Okay. You know, you look at scalability.
1: The term I really think we have to look at in all of this is scalability.
0: Exactly. 100% and agree.
1: I've tried to look back historically, Gary. Have we ever been able to scale surgery? You know, the dermatologists have been able to scale a little bit by using nurse practitioners and physician assistants doing a lot of their lower level work. Anesthesia has been able to scale by using nurse anesthetists, ER doctors. It's a very scalable type practice because people are there when it's an emergency. They're not looking for the doctor with all the skills and personality and interviewing the doctor and deciding whether they want to have this guy do their cataract surgery or their LASIK surgery. You really don't see many success stories when you try to find them in the industry on surgical scaling. So that's one of the big reasons of why you would go with a PPMC company is someone to help manage your growth by getting more lives right. with your practice, more infrastructure, better billing, better economies of scale. But history's not really proven that that's worked in the surgical business like it's worked in some other
0: forms of healthcare. Right. I gotcha. I gotcha. And and. And what I see happening sometimes, and this has and this was even happening prior to the entrance of private equity, but I looked at some of the mega groups around the country, and I and this is not a criticism; it's just an observation. It would be that you know you've got a group of a hundred ophthalmologists, or maybe fifty ophthalmologists, and you've got you know seventy locations, and and you end up having a a whole team of IT professionals who are there to make sure the EMR is up to speed, and you've got 30 mid-level managers, and you've got millions of square feet under roof that you're that you're paying for. So there's really a difference between growth and scale. And growth, you're basically just keeping your return or your or your margin the same. You're just bigger. Whereas scale, you're actually making more profit per dollar invested in infrastructure or marketing. And, and that's what I think is really attractive to someone who's a business owner or someone who is in private equity looking to figure out where they can scale because growth is just growth. It's just a bigger footprint of what you currently have. But scale, that's where you're actually making you know big strides in terms of profitability. And it's very difficult to scale something that is so personal as, as eye surgery has become and perhaps always will be. It's very well said. You, you
1: just articulately said it right there. That, that's going to be the key issue, I think, going forward for these private equity companies now is can they produce that scalable
0: model? Right. So, Jim, walk me through. I know you, you've, you said you've had ups and you've had downs and you've made some financial decisions. I know at one point you uh, had mentioned to me that you decided that selling the surgery center would be something that you'd be interested in. Uh, are you willing to talk about that a little bit? Of uh, what, whether sure. that was a good, bad, yeah. or indifferent decision?
1: So this is very similar to what it would be like right now if you sold to a PE for a seven multiple. So about twelve years ago, I prematurely sold one of my ASCs to a pr- publicly traded ASC management company, and. The storyline was really similar to what you hear today. Well, you don't know what Medicare is going to reimburse in another two years or five years. You know, you're heavily invested in ophthalmology. Why not take money off the table now? We're going to do a better job of increasing the payer mixes. We're going to provide cash for expansion of your business. We're going to do a better job at marketing this ASC and bring more patients to you. And 12 years later, none of that's come to fruition. You know, it's, it's just one of those things that it was a learning experience for me. And it's given me a little bit of skepticism when I'm looking at the current private equity market. You hear all these promises out there that they're going to build you and make you better. And you're going to give up this big income stream. Well, it's a lot of money, and if you kind of look at my what I did, I sold for several seven-figure number. Which at age 40, that was great. I thought I was just on cloud nine. But since then, I've basically doubled the size of the volume. Right, And if I look at what I had, the value I would have now, Gary, if I had kept that. And guess who paid for all the growth? You. I did. (laughs) You know, I brought new surgeons in. And for all you young surgeons out there listening, your managing partner's losing money on you probably the first year you're there, unless there's just a lot of volume and you're a hustler. So... You have to add re- more real estate, more exam lanes for every surgeon you bring on. You have to add more staff. So, again, back to you're growing and all that's nice, but you have to, it usually takes a year and a half to really ramp up every time you add a surgeon and who's paying for the marketing and who's uh, working optometric referrals and making sure that who's putting the work in to produce the CEs for the optometric referrals. Well, it's not the surgery center, right? It's the private practice. So you gave up a lot of income. And I think this is a key figure to look at. If you sell for a 7x multiple, it's basically the same as you borrowing money at a 14 to 15% interest rate. And where on earth are you going to find a guaranteed return of 14 to 15% out there in the marketplace today? You're really not. So I think all of us would say, my goodness, if I could get 14 or 15% interest on any investment, man, sign me up today, right? Right. Well, you may have that within your
0: practice and you're going to sell it off. Right. So you end up you end up having a, a a windfall of cash, but where are you going to invest that cash that's going to get even half the return that it's getting sitting where it's at in your surgery center? Exactly. That that's one of the big points and one of the things I'm looking
1: at as P guys keep knocking on my door, is it's one of the big things you have to realize is there's going to be a reduced income to the shareholder for the retained earnings that they need to continue growth. I mean, what what the private equity company is doing is that there's gonna be a decrease in shareholder income to offset their monies put in to grow the practice. Right. So that's one of those things you have to really calculate in and then you have to look at what are their management fees gonna be right. as well. Uh, Are there hidden management fees? Are you going to make money on the resale if they're able to repackage it, resell it, uh, or do a recap? Is there going to be a set in the contract resale price that if you don't meet your target growth, you're not going to get anything on the resale? Right. These are all up in the air, and I'm not sure that I have the trust to trust someone to be
0: my partner for three to five years to make that resale. Right. Because, and you're, you're really married and and a lot of times they have controlling interest. And if that's the case, you know, you really do have to kind of follow their lead and that, that can put you in an awkward position. So I want to ask one other question. This is something that I have not, uh, it's something I've been sort of thinking about, but had a hard time articulating. I, I think I know how to answer this or to ask this question, but private equity is having in some ways a disruptive effect on practice and surgery center valuations for senior partners that that disruptive effect could be looked at as positive because they're able to look at their practice and say, well, man, I've really built something here. It's really worth a lot. For example, I could go out right now and sell this practice to private equity for a whatever X multiple uh, times EBITDA. And you know, my practice is really worth a lot. Well, so let's say you've got a younger surgeon that's coming on board and saying, "Hey I, I'm, you know I've, I'm on the partnership track. I've, been, I've put my two or three years in I'm ready, I'm ready to um, ready to buy in." Well, now the surgeon the senior surgeon who's thinking about selling either the whole thing or part of the surgery center and practice to private equity, is probably going to look at the younger partner and say, well, this is the market value for the practice. If you want half or a third or a tenth, it's a you know it's going to be a ten or thirty percent or fifty percent of the, of what private equity would pay. And and to be honest, that's a number that young guys coming and gals coming out of, of of residency just trying to make their way are going to have a real hard time coming up with. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or what disruptive forces that might bring in terms of younger partners coming along and trying to buy in? You're exactly right. I've actually talked to
1: some practice administrators that are struggling with this very issue, Gary, where they're scared that some very, very competent younger partners may decide to exit the practice if they're not included in the deal. You know, you have some practices where a lot of the doctors are in the 58 to 65 year age range. They're looking at this from a and and rightly so they're looking at it as Hey, this is a great exit for me right now. You know, I can capitalize on this market But for the younger partners It's not a great thing Especially if they're entrepreneurial and really understand debt and don't mind debt right now For younger partners that don't like signing a $5 million line of credit uh, and personal guarantee, well, you may not ought to be at the big time business. That's one thing we have to understand. It's not for everybody. It's stressful, you know, for guys like me that own 80,000 square feet of commercial real estate. I I sign a personal guarantee for all of that. Right. You got to make that note payment every single month no matter what it can be a little scary at times so you have to make sure you're in the zone that's right for you but you're exactly right if you have a guy or a gal that's really business and entrepreneurial and doesn't mind debt and wants to be the next growth of the practice. It puts them in a compromised situation with some of these practices because they're wanting to sell for the big uh, 10x multiples. And really, that's not what even a lot of companies would pay in the past for a surgery center. Uh, We're seeing a real premium for the top end practices right now because interest rates still
0: are fairly low. Right. Right. Again, these, these private equity folks, they've raised these huge funds and they have to find diversified investments that are are not overlapping in in risk with their other categories of investments. And you know, hey, I, I'm not saying private equity is bad. I just think it is an opportunity. And with any opportunity, there are you know pros and cons. And and that's I think what the flavor of this conversation is is really to say, okay, you know, this is an opportunity that's out there. Let's look at both sides of this coin to see where where the risk might be. It's easy to see, you know, big numbers and think this is great. But with that, I've always thought, all right, it seems really good. Let's let's counterbalance that with, with some other other uh, factors.
1: Yeah. So let's with that. Let's kind of look at when would a private equity deal make a make sense for you. Right. I've been to talks by Bruce Maller, and I'm going to butcher his name, Anthony Deretita, I believe, with uh, TrustWorks. Uh-huh. I heard some really good lectures, when to do PE, when to not do PE. I think you're, you really have it broken down into two situations. One is you may see the older senior surgeon saying, this is a great way for me to exit and get some cash money and i want to go out but for me at 53 i'm not looking at that and that's one of the things anthony and bruce mentioned is that don't look at the upfront money you can't get caught up in that the real reason to partner with private equity is if you have a well-defined business plan where you need capital to expand. That's where it really makes sense. Now, on the converse of that, I'm gonna throw out another storyline. At the OIS meeting, I was listening to a banker from Silicon Valley talk, and he's made a great statement. He said, the most expensive form of capital is giving up your equity. Hmm. And very, very true statement that any big time businessman is going to tell you is that if you can go borrow the money, you're better off borrowing the money for your growth than having to go out and give up equity for your company. Right. If you can afford that, you know. So think about that is do you have a well-defined business plan to grow and do you need this capital to grow or if you're comfortable with debt, can you go out there and acquire the funds yourself uh, through the banking business?
0: Right. Yeah, and that that can be as you mentioned, that can be stressful. And I've been on both sides of that is that decision as well, borrowing a lot of money and starting a practice and paying that note before you and and your staff and your equipment um, and before you pay yourself, you know, and and that that's a that's something that um, maybe at docs 20 or 30 years ago were more accustomed to, but it, it, I don't know if you get this sense or not, but it seems like in some ways guys in my generation or maybe a little bit younger, there's almost a sense of, I don't mind if I'm an employee. I don't mind if I, and that's not negative. It's just a different mindset where I think 30 years ago we're, we're like, I want to be my own boss. I want to be, I want to be the rainmaker. I want to have my own practice. Whereas there's almost been a mindset shift of I don't mind being an employee. It's fine you know someone else can take care of all the stuff I don't want to take care of. Have you found that as well? We've found that as
1: well and and like you said, there's nothing wrong with that. So again on my storyline, I had a bad CEO a couple years ago that made some really poor decisions for the practice. I didn't take a salary for two years. Wow uh, every single employee and doctor here got paid every single month while I wasn't taking a salary because that's your job, right As the owner managing partner, if you make a bad decision, you got to live by that bad decision, you know right now, This year, I'm on the bounce back. It's going to be a great year, and next year is even going to be better, you know. So I'm going to make a lot more than a lot of doctors, but there's a lot of risk, and you have to understand that, that there's going to be months, even in the LASIK business, where you look at those spreadsheets, Gary, And you may lose fifty thousand bucks, but then the next month you make a hundred thousand bucks, and then you're down twenty five (laughs) thousand. You know, it just goes up and down, and it's kind of like watching the stock market. You got to have a stomach for
0: it. That's right. That's right. Jim, any parting thoughts? I appreciate all your all your historical perspective on your dad's practice, on what's going on when you came out, and the things you've seen. Any. Final thoughts on where we're headed with this with this wild ride?
1: Well, I don't think it's going to stop because one of the things you brought up, a lot of these PE firms already have the capital on hand. They have a limited time to invest it, so they've got to deploy that money. So I don't think we're going to see anything slowing down on that. The economy is still, despite uh, being one of the longest-running markets, bull markets. It's running strong still as of today. And we're looking at all the growth in the senior care divisions of health care. You see this across the board, a lot of growth. So I don't think this private equity is going to go away, even if there's a little bit of drop uh, correction in the economy. I think people just need to really back off, not look at the upfront money and make sure you get a good consultant like Bruce or Anthony or somebody to really help you through the process, counsel you on it, and not just make a knee-jerk decision looking at the stars and all the gold uh, from the upfront cash that might
0: be generated. That's wise, wise words, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. I really appreciate it. Wonderful, Gary. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Next, I talked to Dr. Tal Raviv, who owns his own surgical practice in Manhattan and is all too aware of the big conversations in ophthalmology surrounding private equity. We discuss the costs and benefits of private equity and whether it has the potential to change the culture of ophthalmology as a whole. Welcome to another very special episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And today I'm so excited to be able to have a conversation with my good friend, Dr. Tal Raviv. Tal, for those of you who don't know, practices refractive cataract surgery in Manhattan. And uh, he's someone who I always look to um, when when I have a question about something, either clinically or in practice. And today we're talking about private equity. And this, I thought, would be a great conversation to have with Tal because he always brings a unique perspective to whatever we're talking about. So, Tal, with that preamble aside, but thanks for taking some time to talk to me tonight about this very, very interesting topic.
2: Thanks, Gary. How about it be on the podcast?
0: So, um, Tal, we go back actually quite a ways. I think we met at uh, an ACOS meeting many, many years ago. And uh, maybe it was the first fly fishing uh, event that ACOS hosted. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we even did some promos for some millennial eye stuff uh, in the river that day. Um, I'll, I'll <laughs> never forget that. It was a fantastic meeting and it was, it was really great to, to meet you. So fast forward, I want to I get a little bit into your practice because I think that'll set the stage for our conversation. Why don't you give everyone a little bit of an overview of your practice and how your dynamic has um, evolved over the last couple of years?
2: Well, uh, Gary, thanks so much for having me on, Uh, and it's great hanging out and talking to you over the years, and I look forward to many more. My practice is something that uh, I started about four years ago, my current practice. I'm in my 15th or 16th year in practice total, actually maybe 17 at this point, but I started a practice four years ago after purchasing uh, a retiring doctor's practice in Manhattan. I had a presence in Manhattan before, as well as Brooklyn. I was part of a partnership but i decided to go uh, my own way for many reasons. And, uh, you know, I've written about that, and uh, you can read about that at Millennial Eye. But now I'm four years into practice. I have three other doctors that work here, two optometrists and one ophthalmologist. And primarily, we focus on refractive cataract surgery. And being a private practice, uh, I'm certainly affiliated with New York Eye which is part of Mount Sinai Health System, a big, big uh, player here in New York. And I also operate at a surgical center. But I have control of my own destiny. And the practice has grown very well over the last four years. It's hard to believe. And I look forward to a bright future. But of course, for anyone that is reading anything in ophthalmology, in ophthalmology journals, or in meetings, the big conversation these days is private equity. Right. And so when we had bubbles back in uh, 1999, I remember everyone and your neighbor was talking about buying internet stock and everything else, and then it all crashed. Right. And it sort of has that feeling now, that frothy feeling a little bit, where... I'm getting – I mean, I'm a small practice, and I'm getting hit to join this group that just got purchased or smaller private equity-like vehicles I can talk about that I've seen. And not just me, but I talked to another colleague of mine in New York, and he's also getting hit up. So there's so much money. There's so much that's called dry powder in private equity. They have to use this money that it's reaching the smaller – uh, I consider my practice a growth practice, but it's reaching us all, and it makes me, of course, uh, be worried about a bubble right. uh, for that sector, right. as anyone would think. So, let's. Start, What's let's your start sense, Gary,
0: over there? And what are you feeling? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Um, this whole idea of private equity entering ophthalmology—I just have to say—it caught me off guard because you know people have said for a long time that medicine is a great career but a horrible business. Meaning that you can, one can find great fulfillment in the practice of medicine for personal reasons, um, you can have a career that you look back over your lifetime and feel like you have done uh, a fantastic job for your society and humanity, but it's a race to the bottom with declining reimbursement. Um, you know various payers and plans want you to do more with less, and so I think the narrative that I had been accustomed to was that medicine, the business of medicine is going to get worse and worse year after year. And we just have to do the best we can to manage losses and try to do more with less. So it really kind of, I think for me, I was just very surprised to hear that big money smart money is getting into ophthalmology. Was that your sense at all? Did that, did it catch you off guard? Let's start just right there. Did that, did it surprise you when you started hearing like, mump you know, rumblings of this a couple years ago? It was a little surprising, but if you look at healthcare,
2: it's actually going to be one sixth of the economy. So if you think of it that way, it's, it's ballooned. It's, it's out of control in many ways. And ophthalmology, uh, is one of those specialties that's outside of the, of all, it's, it's unique just like dermatology and perhaps dentistry. And that's because we can, we have some procedures that are self-pay and are outside of, Controls of third parties like insurance carriers and things like that, and I think that's what's interesting to private equity, and and it's already occurred in other verticals, quote unquote. They've done it with dentistry, and they've done it with uh, physical therapy practices, and ophthalmology is sort of the next uh,
0: dermatology, is something that just makes sense to them. Right. So let's let's sort of dive into this. You know, I've been reading uh, Ray Dallow's book um, Principles, which is um, very very good. If anyone uh, is looking for a good book, it's it's a great one. Um, it talks about the principles of investing. Uh, talks about you know money managers, how they look at investments. and uh, it's just it's a very interesting book just on on a lot of levels. But one thing that he mentioned in that book is that it's very good to have investments, and this is sort of investment one on one, so it's not like you know groundbreaking. but it's good if you have a portfolio or you're managing a portfolio to have investments that are not only diversified but diversified in ways that aren't related to each other. What I mean by that is investments that are so different that even if all of oil crashes, for example, you have investments that are insulated from potentially even like petroleum. And, and you know, you look at healthcare as one of those maybe insulated and divergent investment categories, where I think if you do have a lot of dry powder, like the private equity companies do right now, they're not only looking for a good Growth and return on investment. I think they're also looking for a new category that's potentially insulated and diversified from bubbles bursting in other categories that may may have already matured.
2: I think you're exactly right. If you look at the the you know the experts, the financial people, people can look at the inflows and outflows of money, and there's a lot going into private equity precisely because of that. People are sensing that we may have reached the top of the uh, boom years we've had with the stock market, and this is way for sovereign wealth funds and pension funds and, and private investors to put 15, 20, 25% of their assets into something which is non-correlated or at least less correlated, exactly as you say, to diversify risk. And because of that, the, the coffers have swelled. And from my understanding is I have some friends in private equity in New York do this. They don't do ophthalmology. They, they're kind of intrigued by the whole thing. But uh, and you know, they have, when they, once they have the money, which has been a problem in the past, but now they have that part, they must spend it. Or else they have to return it to the investors
0: right and, and that's that's very interesting and I don 't think a lot of people realize this, but you know the way the these guys generally make their money is you know they they just collect as much as they can and they sort of live on the two and twenty deal usually their their fees and what they make is two percent of whatever the size of the fund is, and you're investing in actually eighty uh, percent of the deal not actually one hundred percent of the deal if you 're an investor. So it's it's very interesting. These guys just raise tons and tons of money. And actually they they have, I guess, an enviable problem of how do I now take all this money that I've raised and and place good bets so we get a return. It's an actual problem, especially for these funds that have, you know, potentially hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Where do they invest that? And maybe that's they've got so much capital. Maybe that's why we're coming on the radar at this point. It
2: is. And so here's the thing, you know, I've sat down and talked to some of these people and they are financially very, very intelligent, but they're intelligent financially at a very high level of a mergers acquisition type level, not a practice management level, which is like another world, another universe. As you know, and a lot of the pitches are, "Hey, doctor, you can practice medicine, and we'll take care of everything else." But that's not accurate. They're not going to be really be doing that. And let's put let's put things where they are. Private equity are trying to make a deal and get out within four to seven years. That's the, that's right. just how it works. They're not shy about telling you that up front. They're very very transparent about that. And if they do well, the doctor will do well as well because they usually want you to carry some of that ownership into their entity. Private equity, is it good, is it bad? I mean, it can be both. It depends, of course, on the price. And I think a very good gauge and the way they make you say, How do you make money? How do you you know I'm working as hard as I can, I'm doing very well. You you need to Grow 20% more in the next four years of my practice. I mean, that's not possible. And I feel like I'm a very productive surgeon. A lot of the practices that want to sell might be later on in their career, not so. I'm thinking this is a losing proposition, what? but their math is not that math. And that's what I've sort of seen and learned. And their math is basically to pay a high multiple to a large productive practice that's considered a platform practice. We've heard about them and, and they're, we know the people who've sold and they've done really well and very smart move on their part in many, many instances, probably from what I can see in the outside. And these practices are getting a very large multiple on EBITDA and you can look up that number, but that's sort of how we measure after salaries are paid what's left over in the practice. And then they add smaller practices like mine, for example, a smaller number of doctors and they pay a much lower multiple to those. So I'm just going to pick random numbers and let's say they pay 12 multiple uh, for a large practice and they buy the small practices for as low as they can get them, two, three, four multiple. And then they aggregate those to a larger number after four years and sell the whole thing for a 14 or 15 multiple. So they don't really have to do any, they don't have to improve anything. They don't have to do anything except get a larger number and sell it. So it sounds foolproof, except, you know, when you can't sell it at the end. And that's what happened right. in the 90s, late 90s. It was, just crashed. And some of these will sell and some won't. And I think the advice many ophthalmologists have gotten, which is good, is if that initial payment you're getting and make sure to get most of it in cash. I know some of them will say, oh, you've got to roll this into and trust the business. Well, you may trust your business, but how about the other 10 that they're going to put together? Who are those businesses? You don't really know. If that money you're getting in cash is going to put you over your retirement you know, goals and, and uh, nest egg, then by all means. And and if it's not, then you got to really think long and hard about it.
0: Right so and and i I think that's a really uh great explanation of sort of how the math works they're They're sort of aggregating all these practices together and sort of cost averaging so they end up getting a a giant practice at a relative discount, bundling it all yes. together, and then uh, showing profitability and then hopefully kicking that off in in four to five, six, seven years to some some secondary entity the the and that all sounds great. And to be honest, look, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I guess a capitalist, free market capitalist at heart. Um, I hope that doesn't uh, cause people to not listen anymore. But, you know, my, my line of thinking is if you're a businessman and you're, and you're a doctor and you're doing things ethically, I don't begrudge anyone for making a good living. You know, you pay your taxes, be a good citizen. But look, if you're at the end of your career or you're even mid-career or early and you get a fantastic offer, I, I would never fault anyone. Uh, or think less of anyone for taking a potential great windfall or payday, um, but we also have to we have to say at what cost are we selling? And that that actually diverges in a couple of different directions. The first cost is okay to your to your own um, I would say legacy slash professional enjoyment slash the enjoyment of the other partners in your practice, who may or may not have gotten quite the same deal that maybe the senior partner got, what is the cost there towards sort of the overall quality of medicine that will be practiced um, going forward and loss of control? Um, and, and I guess the the other the other side to that is is really um, you know you, you do you do sort of lose control in some ways. You know, are are they are you going to be dictated? Um, what lens you're going to use, what FACO machine, when you're going to be able to upgrade to a new technology, those sorts of things. So um, so, so that's, that's one side. And the other is, what is the cost to the profession? Um, and this is something I wrote about in an article. And so I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on both of these or sort of the loss of control. And also, if this is successful, let's say that this is fantastically successful. Is it, is it bad in some senses that ophthalmologists may lose that business savvy or um turn themselves into more or less doctor technicians where you're you're showing up, you're doing what you're being told to do based on algorithms, uh, which isn't all bad, but potentially it, it has the it has the potential, I think, to really change the culture of ophthalmology that's made it so special, potentially. So what are your thoughts on, on either either of those things?
2: Well, I think you're right on in both. Uh, I think w- part of the economics that I just mentioned with the multiples and everything we described, the big factors, of course, is the doctor's earning potential goes down immediately after the deal. To, to get a larger EBITDA, which is what's left over after salary, you have to normalize. You have to decrease your forward salary. So you're basically, it's one thing, you know, Gary, you and I are, are, and you're an investor, uh, you know, of your own company. And of course we have opportunity to invest in other companies, but how many of us want to invest our, a big part of our future revenue stream from our practice into an, an entity created by a private equity, which has never was existed yesterday and will today. So that's what they're asking to do. Everyone takes a pay cut. So that's the third, the third thing, uh, the loss of control, I think is a big factor, Gary, um, I'm a big believer in capitalism as you are. I think that's what drives the best to go into medicine. And we need that for innovation and for great healthcare delivery. And that's not what's happened in the last five, 10 years. The best have gone to business schools perhaps. And uh, they're now managing the doctors. Uh, you, you better be ready with private equity to have a 30-year-old uh, MBA you know, running the show. I have nothing wrong with that, except you just have to be prepared for that. And I'm a strong believer in healthcare in this country to be to continue having this leadership role that it's had in the past and in innovation is for physicians to ultimately be in a position of leadership. Uh, of course, in partnership, and you always need other, but I think once we lose that, yes, it'll be, you can run a practice, but you won't draw the best and you won't, uh, the best minds won't necessarily go into the field, and so we can have negative consequences. I think with these private equity deals, that these are too short, these are five-year deals. I'm not sure if that's, they can influence things. I think this will come and kind of pass a little bit, but there are other financial structures taking place, uh, these holding companies now that just like they're buying all our instrument devices now, everyone's kind of merging and Catina used to be on its own and now they're all, you know, holding companies are buying and holding sort of the Warren Buffett method that's happening in ophthalmology too. And that will also change physician ownership. And that that's, can lead to exactly what you were talking about, where eventually you'll you'll join a practice. Some of your earnings will go to this greater entity, and you'll just plug along. Everything will be very formulaic, and uh, you know there won't be that entrepreneurialism. I don't think. Maybe there's ways to keep that in there, but it'll be different. So let's let's look at
0: the potential plus side. And and by plus side I don't necessarily mean, you know, you, you get a payday, you get to um, you know, take some chips off the table. We all understand that as being the the very obvious plus side to private equity. But is it possible that the 30-year-old MBA uh, has something to contribute that we could you know, some of us could tremendously benefit from you know, I'm, I'm humble enough to realize that, you know, you're good at the things that you do. You're good at the things you study. If you don't study business, um, and I surely didn't uh, in school, I was too busy, you know, studying for my MCAT and, you know, going through med school. Um, so <laughs> is it possible that, that these MBAs out there um, who have, who understand the good foundational principles of business um, can apply those to ophthalmology and, Maybe even in a smarter way, start negotiating for more lucrative contracts. Um, start figuring out if they're controlling more uh, percentage of a market in a given area. Will they have more leverage with payers to say, "No, I, you know, our practice isn't going to participate with with this unless you give us a a better um, better uh, you know compensation for X, Y, and Z code." Um, what do you think the upsides would be with private equity involved from that side?
2: Yes. The answer is there, there are going to be some smart private equity managerial folks that can, in the short period of time, boost a practice and fix it. I think it won't be the nitty gritty. I think it'll be, let's put some money. They're going to be allocating money. Let's put some money and build this surgical center here. Or let's do this here. Let's put these two practices together. I think it'll be things in that of that nature. What I haven't heard yet from any of the private equity deals, and there's lots written about it, is that anyone has negotiated a better contract ever. I still think that even the largest player is still relatively small. And I think, you know, even, you know, the new Amazon and, and, uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and then JP Morgan, they're going to have time even negotiating and they're gigantic. So right. it's not, that's not the avenue that's going to. Occur right away, maybe in the long term. That's the hope, and certainly, if you have a big, if you you know, depending on the market, if you are the only ophthalmologist, eventually, yes, you will have some control over that. Anything's possible, but I think it's it's uh, it's a lottery ticket. I think uh, it's hard to predict.
0: Well, and and I think that the anxiety from what I've heard from others who are either going through this process or have gone through the motions and maybe have decided to back away. Is that they're worried of disruption and especially when interests aren't necessarily aligned. You know, I've heard from some folks who went through the process and decided to say no because they said, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I want to, if I want to buy a new laser, I want to, I want, I don't want someone to tell me I can't. You know, if if I decide that it's better for patients, even if I decide that, you know, I'm going to make less money, but I feel like I'm doing a better job for my patients and that's a trade off you're willing to take. Um, you know, th- uh, one of the, one of my friends you know, basically said, I don't want someone telling me that I cannot do this or that just because it's going to be financially not quite as good. Um, you know, and, and that's where uh, uh, misaligned interests can start breeding a little bit of discontent. And that's where I'm a little bit worried. You know, ultimately, I want the best for private equity companies and I want the best for my physician comrades and colleagues because, you know, if this deal goes really well then it actually is best for everybody. If it goes badly, then um, you know, it's, it's unlikely that um, <laughs> we, we build upon this model and make it something that uh, could be really beneficial down the road. You know, I feel like we're really in the, in the very beginnings of figuring out what is a good deal, how do you evaluate if it's a good deal, and um, you know, even figuring out how do we keep our interests aligned to the level that allows physicians to still have a voice um, in some of those decisions. I think you're exactly
2: right. I've seen examples on the negative end where a physician was sold, and then not long after, all of a sudden, they, the, the larger entity felt it was better to have a second surgeon go into that location because that surgeon was promised, you know, access to this market. And so you can imagine, uh, there was it's just not good. Now, most places, most private equities don't want to rock the boat. But remember, eventually, even if you do sell five years later, you're still working if you're young in your career. Who's the second group? Right. I mean, you have zero control over that. You have some control over the first group. So like I said, I think if you, the most people, the people that are talking about privately, the doctors that are happy, most of them, I believe, have done well with that chips off the table. That's uh, that's a big part of it. That, that's for any of us because we can, at worst, start from zero and build it again if we had to knowing we're financially secure. So.
0: Right. That's exactly it. That. Tal, uh, thank you so much for sharing your evening with us, uh, t- giving uh, you know your perspectives on this. Um, I find it to be a very interesting time to be an ophthalmologist. Again, this is something that took me a little bit by surprise. And I feel like I'm playing a little bit of catch up, trying to do my homework on what um, what opportunities are out there, as well as what potential risks um, might be hidden in the weeds. So thanks for sharing your evening with us.
2: Thanks, Gary. I was uh, happy to participate. A big fan of your podcast and keep up the good work.
0: Awesome. You're welcome anytime. Come on back. We'd love to have you on any anytime you want, okay? All right. Take care. Private equity doesn't show signs of slowing down in ophthalmology. If you own your own practice, it's likely on your mind. As Jim said, if you have an offer, find a good consultant to counsel you through the process. Don't make a quick decision without considering the situation from all angles. Of course, there is a big payday to consider as well as the benefits of being led by someone who understands the principles of business. On the other hand, there's a loss of control over decision making and the potential loss of entrepreneurialism in ophthalmology as a whole. As Tell said, he would never fault anyone for wanting to take the windfall, but he urges people to ask, at what cost are we selling? With that, thanks for listening to Off The Grid. Until next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net.